You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. The Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network is brought to you by Onyx Hunt. Bringing you the best GPS mapping software directly to your smartphone or desktop, Onyx offers you the ability to see property boundaries, mark waypoints, track your location, and so much more. Visit onyxmaps.com or you can download it directly from your app store today. Save 20% off of your purchase by using the code NATION20 at checkout. That's capital N NATION followed by the number 20. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. Hello, guys. This is Adam Keith here. Matt Dye's here. And uh, thanks for joining us once again right here on the Land and Legacy podcast. Um, interesting times in the world, uh, as by now you probably know. Um, so you're going to probably, the podcast will continue, but you'll probably hear Matt and I calling in. Um, so I'm in one location, he's in another location. So um, I know you guys are probably all starting to adapt to um, the social distancing and uh, <laughs> this time in our homes or on our farms in isolation, some of you guys are are looking at the world, going, "Well, it's finally uh, they're they're starting to get a little bit of a taste of the of the life I like to live." <laughs> I yeah. I was talking to one of my uh, to my brother recently. He went fishing and he told me he went with one of our buddies, and I said, "What? You drove in the truck?" And he goes, "Think about it, man. That guy basically lives at home. He's a recluse. Who's he going to interact with?" Like, well, that's very true. He probably sees one person a week, and it's his wife. So um, right. <laughs> so some people are out there going, yeah, maybe they'll enjoy what I found to be so awesome long ago. But anyway, um, man, uh, that doesn't mean we can't find time to get out in the woods, get out, get out to the farms, do a little bit of habitat improvement. Um, we've been rock and rolling uh, with just playing catch-up from a busy consulting season. Um, as well as uh, trying to find a little bit of time to go to our farm and, and do some work. And, and uh, we did that this past week. We were able to get a prescribed fire implemented, um, pretty big chunk. And, uh, you know, a lot of great things going on. Um, we'll, get all, we'll get to that stuff. But before we jump in, guys, it is this podcast will launch, I guess it'll be April, April 1. Yeah. Yeah. So April 1, it's unbelievable that it's almost, oh my gosh, that it's almost April, but um, I guess it is April when you hear this podcast. So it's incredible that we made it here to April, but uh, um, 
you know, one thing that's coming up in this month and it's happened, man, we've been looking at a lot of orders coming through our website, shoplandandlegacy.com. Um, is food plot season coming. And uh, some of you guys down south, you may already be putting seed in the ground. But for a, uh, for a lot of us, it's just getting ready to ramp up. And so it's it's a crucial time to start figuring out your seed orders, figuring out how, what you're going to be putting in the ground, and laying out the, the food plot architecture on your farm. Absolutely. This is like rapidly approaching spring i think it's gotten here faster than a lot of people i know at least in the last couple of years have so it's kind of like sprung on everyone so it's definitely uh time to get orders in and i know stratton is down there busy bagging and getting stuff out the door so uh be sure to get your stuff in through the shop land legacy we'd be happy to uh help you guys out you guys have any questions please go back and refer to any of the podcasts we've done in the past based on uh, the forages and kind of planting techniques. It's a good time to brush up on all that. Um, So definitely go back to all those podcasts and learn about the forages, the varieties that, uh, that they offer. And um, I'm kind of semi excited for planting um, season. It's kind of uh, a fun time that approaches here rapidly. Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, there's a couple announcements to make. Um, First one, uh, a lot of a lot of seed have, has been ordered online. Um, this is kind of a good news, bad news kind of thing. But Stratton has already sold out of the Wild Game Changer 2.0s. Um, so sorry, everyone, um, but the Game Changer uh, originals are still available. Um, it's just one group difference, so a little bit uh, different maturing rate, but. Um, Guys, uh, this seed's still awesome. Uh, that was what we planted a lot of last year. So, um, Game Changer 1.0 is still available on our website. They're $39.95 for a 50-pound bag. So, 50-pound bag, um, typically, unless you're in high deer numbers, you can do a bag per acre um, or bag and a half per acre. Um, so, that's still avail- or that's available. You've got the Ancestry blend. Um, if you can't grow soybeans in a small food plot, maybe look at the ancestry blend if you're in Arkansas, um, and the heritage everywhere else. And so heritage blend is in stock, ready to rock. Um, it's also, uh, what's our other one? Bonafide. We got bonafide in stock, um, which is a, uh, dwarf corn and soybean blend. Um, so if you kind of like that, um, and they're both glyphosate tolerant so you can uh, definitely get those ready to rock um and keep some weeds out um and then yeah you know guys it's a it's an awesome awesome time to be getting your seed ready um you can check it out at shoplandandlegacy.com or just broke the news on our website but uh there is some things in the work for stratton that we're happy uh, happy to hear they got them lined out. So Stratton seed blends and seed should become easier to find hopefully this spring. Um, boy, there's a lot of things going on in the world of, uh, COVID-19 that I'm not sure where everything's going to stand over this crucial, busy, busy time. But, um, since Stratton is in the ag world, um, they're kind of an essential, but, uh, Here's the news. Stratton has partnered with Mossy Oak Biologic, and so a lot of the um, places you would find biologic seed, you'll likely be able to find some 
Wild Game Changer Soybeans, Stratton Go Wild blends that's in a mossy oak bag um, in those places, Tractor Supply, Walmart, Cabela's, Bass Pro, places like that. So uh, be checking in with your local uh, biologic dealer to see if they're going to be carrying some of these new blends like the Heritage Blend, the Ancestry Blend, and the Game Changer Soybeans. Yeah, it's it's same same stuff, same blends, just probably a different little look to it. Um, but uh, it's it's definitely an, an awesome um, partnership for for Stratton, and we're excited for them to be able to continue to grow and get these blends that we've had a lot of success out there and in the hands of more individuals. So um, that's fantastic, and happy to see all that develop. That's right. That's right. So anyway. Um... Yeah, it's it's a lot of great things, man. We're we're getting ready to kick it with with uh, food plot season coming up. So um, hopefully everybody else is excited as well. <laughs> we know there's been a pile of people excited because we've been seed orders coming in for months now. It seems like, and so uh, yeah, um, guys, it's it's almost here. We almost made it through the uh, dog days of winter. Um, <laughs> yeah. just in else? time to be forced ordered to stay inside even more <laughs> yeah i know it's kind of a little bit of a bummer it's like spring's here but you got to stay inside don't go anywhere yeah it's like, oh gosh you know how difficult that is for me but i'm but, but i'm um, essential yeah <laughs> i swear i'm essential sir yeah. um but what 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 kind of falls in between that that winter time frame and uh, food plot season is definitely a great window for prescribed fire and we kind of mentioned there earlier on, we've been able to do some and are looking forward to doing a little bit more in yeah. this, this downtime. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the big things, if you follow, if you're on social media and you're active in some of these, in some of these groups that are habitat minded and um, you'll know that, you know, there's been a lot of prescribed fires going on for months now. Um, and we've always, some people have always made the comment to us, isn't it a little late to be burning? But for us, um, we kind of there's a smaller window of time that we try to hit because um, we've had phenomenal success with it. Uh, for a couple, I guess there's a lot of benefits here, a lot of things that we're shooting for, and I probably won't even remember all of them when I start listing it off. But one of the big things is turkey season starts, you know, probably anywhere from uh, 14 to. I, I, what is 20 days? So it's like 22 days, days from now. 20, so we're going to yeah. burn probably tomorrow. And so just over two weeks out, um, we're going to burn. And if you've ever been around turkeys and timber that have been, uh, where you've had some burning, it's very attractive. So, um, we're, we're able to burn a lot closer to turkey season. So it's a lot more attractive than say, if we'd have burned two months ago. Um, another big thing that is probably the most important for us that we really like is a lot of our understory, um, plants that are some, a lot of them are non-native, um, are already starting to green up specifically. And we don't have much of it cause we attack it pretty hard, but autumn olive, bush honeysuckle, and then mainly multifloral rose. And those are already starting to leaf out. And we can, if we can catch the day where it's going to carry a good fire we can significantly knock those back because um, they're already pushing up buds or pushing up leaves and so when we hit them with a fire a lot of times it won't even come back the next year or when they do it's it's a very short uh growth period in there 
and so it's much more able we're much more able to control it long term by knocking it out a little bit later in the spring with a burn so I, I feel like it's it's like the comparison of like you you take it out at the knees basically you re, you severely cripple that plant if you don't kill it during this this little window here as as you have already had a good push but but there's no canopy on any of the larger trees so you can still burn effectively and um that that honestly you, you can't cover 150 acres a day really doing any other practice than prescribed fire especially in the timber ground so it's really really been effective and fun to watch because even if you don't outright top kill it and really set it back you you might get you know a a third of that plant begin to go and bloom the following year. So if you had to go back and do herbicide, you're severely cutting down on herbicide usage that you have to do and apply, you know, follow up year. So um, it really is like this, this nice little window. And, and it's always kind of crunch time because it, because sometimes you're like, well, I don't know if I'm going to get the weather after this kind of initial flush of, of some, some budding out and leaping out. But if I don't, oh well. But right now, I know what is so good, so much good. Yeah, it, it, the window of time of a black area is so much shorter. The later you burn, too. Uh, Absolutely, we're looking yeah. at, you know, we're gonna burn uh, tomorrow, and we burned just a few days ago, and it will start being, it'll start greening up next week. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, when, very easily. If we had burned in February or burned in. January, we'd go months of just black ground, um, yep. and so another big, huge advantage there. And and frankly, just I don't know. We're just too doggone busy in January and February, so it works well in March. And and last year we burned in mid-April. So uh, depending it was, on the it was year, April twelfth we burned yeah. last year. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna hammer a big fire, probably a hundred fifty acre burn tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow. So. Yeah. Right there in the heart of where donuts lives. Yeah, and and I know people are going to ask, you know, what kind of fire guys is a backing fire like this and that. You know, it's one of those things where really every kind of probably fire or ignition technique is probably used somewhere throughout the different burns or or a yeah. one burn in particular. You know, you have such different. Hopefully, you have such different vegetation types and plant communities that you're trying to do different things with within 150 yeah. acres. You should so each one needs something different. You shouldn't and ever so prescribe or we will never advise, hey, if it's in the timber, it should be back in fire because there's times like tomorrow, like where we burned last week, mm-hmm. where a head fire is needed. And yeah, our job, our purpose is to knock some trees out. We're trying to top kill some trees. Um, and so we, we're lighting flanking fires, we're lighting backing fires, we're lighting head fires. We're doing it all through a mosaic of the, of the burn unit to where we, we can use fire as a big 80 grit paintbrush rather than trying to just creep a fire through and call it good and burn off leaf litter. We're trying to, we're trying to really manage aggressively. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and like, you know, to put people's at, at, uh, at ease, it's not like trees are dying because they're, they're catching on fire. It's just the time of the year, and and with that little bit more of intensity of fire with with head firing in some of these areas, some of these slopes, yeah, you're you're going to get some top killing, but it's not like things are getting crowned out or, or or anything like that. It's just slightly higher flame heights, more intense, faster moving, and um, the results are what we want. Yeah. So I think I think if everyone was um, 
honest with themselves and, and, and again, are listening to the podcast and the value of some of these trees, what they're bringing, you'd probably implement some of the same techniques once you get comfortable and know fire responses and know how to handle that. You'd do the exact same thing. So um, we'll be able to bring all that to you guys, though, in, in future podcasts as we watch and develop um, this, this uh, growing season, how these areas respond. Yeah, and hopefully you'll see us shooting some turkeys out of it. Well, that's always nice, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, another little uh, example of, of what occurred um, is on, on a prop, part of the property that uh, anybody who's listened to the podcast much or um, has watched some of the videos, uh, they they may recognize a stand site called Dollhart. And mm-hmm. Dollhart is uh, kind of an area that we did a real aggressive, heavy TSI um, several years ago, and then we expanded upon it, and uh, it's it's been a really really awesome place for us, awesome tree stand, and uh, the one thing about it is uh, it's it's kind of a it's a little bit of a northwest facing, but a little bit west southwest kind of a, a an interesting little spot, but it's really the the understory is filled up with a lot of spice bush. Um, which is, is fine as it's native, it's fine, but it's gotten a little aggressive, especially on these west and south facing slopes where it should be a more open, should have hotter fire. So Matt, you lit a little bit of a hot fire there the other day and sent a fire yeah. up through it and set, man, I, I looked at it yesterday and it set a lot of it back. So, uh, mm-hmm. there's a job Good. well done and, and, uh, hopefully we can get more, um, some more diversity in that understory rather than being dominated by um, spice bush. <clears throat> spice bush, and, and I know in those areas too, uh, specifically right there at the, the stand site, there was quite a bit of multiflora rose too. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you got that response on a, on a woodier um, shrub spice bush, you know, you know that, you know, effect is probably even greater on multiflora rose. And that's the thing, you know, w- once you open up the, the canopy um, and you have that diversity of under let's just say undergrowth um, young forest different species coming back that's the whole purpose of the fire is to reset it and um, you've got more sunlight coming through there we had a good wind and with that um, combination it was perfect for the head fire a little more aggressive to move through it and consume some of the tops as well that had been cut and as trees were felled in that area through the TSI so all in all, it's um, a huge win-win for that area and, and one that was definitely needed. But um, I, I was happy to see that fire respond on that slope in the way it did. It was kind of like, wow, that's pulling through there really, really good. Look at that thing go. Talking with Chad, I was like, well, I better hurry up and get kind of in front of it because uh, there's more on the other slope to go and, and light off. So I had to hustle around there because it was moving so fast yeah. um, quickly. So yeah. that, was, that was definitely a a good thing to see it was much needed yes absolutely we've been trying to you know we blew line in and that's the thing when you're using prescribed fire some years you may blow in line and by golly you just don't get it done um, mm-hmm. last year chad blew in the fire line and <laughs> we just never could get the right weather to go and knock it out and uh or the time was our big thing and uh but this year was able to uh to get that one burned and then hopefully we're going to make another big burn this uh, tomorrow. So Yeah, and I, you did mention one thing that, that um, expand on for just one second. You said you know, like not just wanting to consume the leaf litter. 
I think if that's if that's your goals for you know burning, especially in the dormant season, I think that um, the, basically the dormant season burn is is really misunderstood. You're not you're not understanding fully the benefits that can come from doing a dormant season burn if you're just simply thinking, oh, I just want to consume the leaf litter. There's many other benefits. Um, to do that. So in sometimes some applications, it might mean ramping up or changing the ignition type or um, lighting on a different side of the burn unit so the wind will help it through. But I just I don't want people to utilize the technique, you know, and only see a partial benefit from it. It's like if, if you're going to apply it, let's do it right. It, it's yeah. like it's like when you when you go into an area and you're like, hey, I want to do some TSI. And you only do like half of what you should or crap trees. It's like, yeah, but like you only did half of it. All these other trees should be cut too. Let's get some sunlight in here. Yeah. You know, you, what you would, what you would see, it's just like going back a few podcasts and we talked about timber management. Um, What you would see is if, if you attempted a one acre TSI um, timber stand improvement, project and you only went in and cut 50% of the trees that should be cut out of the weed trees not not looking at 50% of the total trees but 50% of the trees that are weed trees the other 50% are going to benefit from the cutting just as much as the crop trees and so really you're back to square one in in a very short period of time and Absolutely. and we see that a lot. I mean, that's a big part of our business is helping get people over that hump um, to where if you're going to do something, make sure you get the full effect and the full benefit. If you're going to burn, don't just try to burn the leaf litter off. Try to set some things back. Try to stimulate that native seed bed. Um, yes. But if, you're, if yes. you're really only creeping a fire through a closed canopy forest, you're not really getting much. You're putting a lot of man hours and you're probably worried to death that you're going to burn your neighbor's property down, a lot of stress, and you're going to get a very minute benefit. Um, and and you could do so much better. We we want you to be safe and be responsible, of course. But but once you grasp that and understand what's going to happen, don't be afraid to do more than just burn the leaf litter off. Go ahead and take yeah. it up a notch. Take it up a notch. Bam. So, Emerald. Yeah. yeah. That's a fire on it. Yeah. I so, man, I, I I hope I hope there's a lot of people that are using some prescribed fire and, and continuing to use. I saw one of our clients was hammering away on a big fire unit um, today on Instagram. Yep. So, uh, really awesome nice. stuff. But, um, yeah, so we're, we're kicking out. You know, guys, we're kind of shifting out of timber, timber improvement, forest improvement type work and getting into more of our old field management. We're spraying out cool season grasses and we're using prescribed fire um, and we're getting ready for food plot season. So it's, it's not that there's ever a time to put the brakes on. There's always something you can do. Yeah, absolutely. There sure is. But um, you know, what's burn burning a hole right now in me. I don't know, man. <laughs> it's this podcast we're about to talk about. Oh, yeah. Right now, I yeah. uh, I don't know. I was, I was busy writing. Matt, that's a very unfair question. What's burning a hole? Well, there's <laughs> usually something, three, three or four items that we saw somebody said or did or is doing, and 
and or just uh, ideas were floating around in our own heads and all this stuff <laughs> yeah it really was it, you could have came up with anything i probably would have said yeah that too <laughs> yeah um but man this this topic i guess kind of came as a writing a report the other day and and it was just like the this balance or like this checkup mindset wise that i think that a lot of people probably need to have especially coming out of deer season and then and then getting into the trapping let's say side of things and then bonds are going to be dropping here in the next few months and and predators are going to be back on the scene from let's say this topic standpoint so we might as well just address it right here before we get into as, as we're leaving one one kind of a time frame period and getting into another it's uh I, I think it's just important that we we hammer this home because there's been some new research coming out um by actually a, a guest that we had on not long ago michael chamberlain um out of uga and they've done some fantastic stuff working with coyotes and um i think that with with new information we have to go back and utilize it for for making some thoughts that a lot of people are, are commonly having and um, I don't know, Adam, how many times do you see it on social media or just in conversation? Just just the topic of coyotes and predators and this this conflict or, you know, this back and forth battle between deer as well as cattle and that. I mean, not cattle, excuse me, coyotes and that impact and that relationship that they have. How often do we see that? Oh, it's it's almost daily during a certain, you know, that deer season's over and before turkey season stuff really fires up it's like almost daily you could get on social media and just scroll and find somebody coyote trapping coyote hunting hating on coyotes uh shoot a coyote save a fawn or whatever that phrase is um that is just saying just as much as amazing grace i think um and that that is constant. It's just an ongoing splurge of of words coming out of people's mouth when it comes to coyotes. It's like a hatred that is like once you give a son your son or your first child a deer rifle, and you say, "All right, near, now you're a deer hunter." It's like, okay, now repeat after me: I hate predators. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I will use force against all coyotes, both foreign and domestic. <laughs> yeah. You hear you hear that a lot, but it's like what 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 isn't truthfully understood? Um, or or I, I, let me say this: I think what's what's misunderstood from the deer hunter's perspective is the life cycle and the way that coyotes use the landscape. Therefore, what impact do they have on on white-tailed deer? Well, we don't we don't truthfully know when we say these things. A lot of times, um, without without knowing the full picture, one, and then we try and say. Well, if I do X, if I, if I control predators, if I shoot that coyote, like I, I will save a fawn or I will impact the deer herd. But, but to what degree? And, and I think that it, basically the question posed here is what makes the biggest impact controlling coyotes or controlling antlerless deer? Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna go through that whole thing, that discussion, and provide real life science articles directly off QDMA website or through quality whitetails, their magazine to bring you guys both sides and, and just have this healthy discussion about what it is 
coyotes are doing, how they're utilizing the landscape, and then what antlerless deer are doing as well. Um, I just I just think that those statements are so common, and and when they're so common, they're so commonly accepted, but then so commonly misused and misunderstood though as well. Yeah. And so it's like this big, huge misunderstanding or misuse of, of good quality information that as hunters we have at our fingertips, but if we don't read it and apply it to what we're doing, then we're not learning or, or we're not understanding things. So, yeah, absolutely. It's one of those, it's a lot like soil, I think. Um, or I'll make a comparison is the more you learn about soil and microbes and everything that's going on within soil, the more we realize what we didn't know, the more we realize there's an intricate, uh, web within that, that is like, Ooh, this connects to that, which connects to that, which connects to that. Oh, so if I remove this segment of it, then it kind of causes this spider web to, unravel in a way that I really don't know what the outcome is. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to do this in my soil or I'm going to go do this, this or put this chemical in it or this tillage, I'm going to affect this, which may be a food for that. And same thing can be true with coyotes and, uh, and the whole f- food, the whole predator prey relationships across the board. Well, let's just, you know, take out Even, game in, individuals. You could you uh, could go into snakes, you could go into raptors, removing yeah. any of those. Um, and let's just use it like this. Um, we, we talk so much about coyotes because that's kind of the one the, the one that is hated on so much. But it's got the most index fingers pointing at it, let's be real. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that poor that poor, poor prairie wolf. But um if you were to take the hatred that is out there for the coyote because they eat deer, all right? Let's say that turkey guys all of a sudden went, you know what, the number one predator for for nests is snakes. We're going to kill every one of them. And the amount of assault that, that goes into trying to remove coyotes shifted into snakes, and people just started doing everything they could to remove snakes. It would throw the whole ecosystem out of whack. And yeah. there would be an explosion of rodents and, and other things to where then it would be like, oh, my gosh, what did we do? We don't know what the... Once you snip that line, that web, and you disconnect something, then you've got to rely. It's just like taking a rubber band and stretching it all the way out and then tying another one and tying another one. And then you just snip one of those. The whole thing just turns into a bird's nest. And yeah. and if you had that amount, like, Lord, help us the day that if anyone could ever do to the coyote that most guys wish they could do, the whole oh. we would throw things way out of whack. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's that's definitely true. And um, so basically, you know, not not to get nerdy, but to be able to relay hard science into the into the conversation, we we do have to review some uh, some of the content, let's say, that's from these articles. But um, I think it's going to provide real life, you know, information as well as solid figures for people to be able to wrap their minds around why we're having this debate and why, you know, at the end of it, we feel the way we do based on this science that's presented. So, um, 
this this research that came out of um or I guess through University of Georgia. It was a tri-state project. So Alabama, Georgia, and South Carolina, a lot of other coyote research in the past had covered, you know, 100 to 150 square miles, but they quickly learned that the coyotes function at a much, much larger scale and um, in excess of 2,500 square miles. So what they did, they went to a, a tri-state area, expanded out the research, and they um, they were able to trap and put collars on 190 different coyotes. And that was able to, you know, pick points um, throughout the day of where they're utilizing, uh, whether it's different cover, habitat types, um, how they're traversing the landscape. But, um, no, and I, I want to reiterate, like, the point of previous projects they, they the coyotes that they were studying were going outside of that that 2500 square mile um radius and, and i think that's this should blow people's minds because it's so we, we get so focused on let's say the 200 acres that you manage and um maybe you do see a coyote consistently on camera but is it the same coyote like how do you know how, how are you able to determine that um but when we're looking at scale and home ranges and core areas, comparing deer to coyotes, you cannot, there's no equivalent there. There are completely two different animals. And what they quickly found is that even within coyotes, there's two very different um, personalities or ways that coyotes will use the landscape in the form of residents versus transient coyotes. And so, they found that resident coyotes were going to occupy on average territory about seven square miles. And so that's a coyote who stays in and basically utilizes seven square miles, which is 4,500 acres, 4,500 acres. So again, even, even when you're looking at a resident who covers less ground than a transient, we're still way above that. Let's rough, recreational property yeah. 200 acres of size we're, we're way in excess of, of that scale 4500 acres um and in comparison to that transit coyotes they use more than 25 square miles mm. 25 square miles it's like i guarantee you if you go to google earth from from whatever location or maybe the location of your farm do one of the radiuses out there and and try and figure out just how far and and the the areas that these coyotes just, are occupying. It's incredible. I, I'm on Onyx right now, and you know if I just did a line that was 25 miles from the center of and, and it my says farm, typically using more than 25 square miles. And and it's it's funny, even some of the transients um, before they before they died or found a new territory they were traveling hundreds of miles hundreds of miles and it's it's incredible because as you're doing that adam i'll i'll kind of keep filtering through this stuff but um yeah they also from from my farm to seth's farms only 21 miles right so so the same coyote that that could be found 20 miles away is it could be on the same uh, or, 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 you know, a really good friend's farm. That's that's very 
very likely in yeah. what they're finding in these studies. And this is, again, it's Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina. The coyotes that were in the previous studies that were that were moving in excess of the 2,500 miles. Well, my farm's only 36 miles from Arkansas. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking crossing state lines. Those. This is the scale at which... And, and, and someone's probably sitting back saying, oh, I get it, guys. I can already see where this is going. Like if we're having if we're having this discussion of how coyotes use the landscape and I'm trying to manage my 200 acres or 500 acres and I've got coyotes that are occupying and crossing state lines, how, how much of an effect am I going to have? Well, yeah, now we're, now we're quickly getting better. But there's more. Wait, there's more. It's funny because they found that when a resident – so those that were occupying the 4,500 acres, seven square miles, once one was either shot, trapped, or killed, a transient coyote quickly filled the void. And and quickly is like, well, what do you mean quickly? What's the, what's the scale there? And a lot of people would think, oh, you know, within within weeks or, or a few months, that void would have been filled. But what they found, because they were trapping both residents and transients, it was more or less days, within days. Or a few weeks. Yes. Yeah. Would come in that quickly. It's almost like that you want to think of a coyotes bouncing around, almost like bouncer, like uh, bumper cars to where they like go and they like bump into another one and they so they kind of yeah. bounce back. And as soon as that other car is not there, other coyotes not there to bump, they shoot into that gap and take up residency or kind of use that as their core area yeah definitely and and, and roughly 35 percent of what they found in coyotes using that type of landscape 35 percent of them were transient coyotes so if you remove a transient coyote and there's not like a tag on them that says hey i'm a transient hey i'm a resident but let's just say you you shoot a coyote you've done nothing to impact the local dynamics <laughs> of the coyote population and and if that's the case then you haven't done anything to influence your deer herd itself because they're 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 quickly going through your property and they're on to five others by the end of the day and so if you even if you do remove a resident you know within days or weeks very quickly that void or that presence of a, of, of a, what was a resident is quickly filled in yeah and so wow holy crap we we've got to realize that scale is is just incredible. Did you have any clue that they were occupying such large ranges? You're asking me. Yeah. Oh shoot, not real. I mean, not not a clue is that big. You know, we've been running trail cameras on my family farm since two. Th- oh no. Uh, well, I was eleven, so right there around two thousand, and. Uh, uh, there's been times where a very strange, odd color coyote would show up, and it's like mm-hmm. never to be seen again. To where it's like almost just like they're once and done photos of coyotes, where it's just like you have no clue really who they who they are, and you know that there's no chance of really seeing them again because they're probably gone. But you don't have right. any clue. It's not like I'm monitoring a 25 mile radius of going. Oh, here he is. He's up well, here sure. on this one. Yeah. So no, it's definitely uh it's it's interesting. It's kind of one of those things where it's like <laughs> you can't really you can't really change 
and manage your neighborhood as in people. Like I'm sitting in a subdivision in my home right now, and it's not like I can I can manage what's going on in another house two blocks away. But all, mm-hmm. all, the only thing I can do is manage what's going on, and that's a kind of. <laughs> because I'm married. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so, you know, it's, I can try to control what's going on in my house. And the same thing could be said about your farm, like control what you can control, manage what you can manage. Cause right. When it gets into really understanding predator relate predator prey relationships and how coyotes maneuver and use your property, Chances are we you we don't understand just exactly what's going on as a transient or a residential, um, and at the same time we don't know what's going to happen if you remove one or the other. Um, and and I, you've seen this a lot in with observations where people may say, you know, I don't really get mad at the coyotes because all mine are just like when I see coyotes, it's like one by himself and he's always out mousing around. And he's always around. And it's like, that's a coyote that I, I know I'm going to have coyotes one way or another. I'm not going to do anything that's going to greatly decrease the population. They're going to be here. So if I'm going to pick the ones I want, I want the ones who are loners who are mousing around chasing rodents. Um, If I'm seeing a whole pack, that might be a little bit of an issue. Um, But it's like, sometimes we see too often that we get in this mindset of, if he's got yellow hair and canines, he's got to go. Right. That's that's often often what you hear, and it's um, you know, it, it's certainly important to to know these facts of, of of research, and this is why research is done so that we can apply it to what it is that we're doing. Know if if what we choose to do and spend our time is actually going to have that impact that we're hoping for, and and if not. You know, there's been, let's just compare it to habitat real quick and we'll quickly get back to this. But, you know, there's techniques where it's like maybe once I realized what I was doing wasn't having that impact that I wanted to, I didn't didn't choose to do that that technique anymore. Maybe it was um, fruit trees. Maybe once I realized that, like, all the fruit was getting consumed by other species and it took a long time and the success rate was really low, once I realized that, I probably didn't use that technique anymore, and I and I devoted my time to other things. That's simply what we're trying to do, and why we're presenting this uh, great research is so that that is limited, and and that we're able to go ahead and utilize this this great information research and apply it to time well spent in the field and executing on your management objectives. And um, you know, one another cool thing that they found is that. Many of the transients, they were they're heavily selected roads to travel on, and so when they're navigating the landscape, um, I say landscape because they have such a large range, they're moving on roads a lot, very heavily preferred road system travel. Whereas residential coyotes, they did not prefer that at all. Very different, and so they were. Um, avoiding road has strong selection for open fields, agricultural habitat. And huh. so, um, you know, can you infer through trail cameras if you're dealing with a lot of residents or, um, yeah, or transit counts, maybe, but you know, you could be skewed on the way you're just, or where you're placing your trail cameras at. However, that is kind of a cool thing to, to note. Um, but since they are able to have, all this GPS information, 
over time they were able to develop okay these rough ranges from from the residents and go in and collect scat from those areas and you know once they have their range they're able to do dna testing and go back and find out you know which individuals are which when they trap them pulling hair and everything and they were able to um you know determine who scat was what and then from there look at the analysis of what it was that they were actually consuming so to help determine how much deer was actually being consumed and they found that coyotes that maintained larger territories consumed less deer so a lot of the transient coyotes were consuming less deer whereas coyotes that maintained the smaller territories with less dense vegetation ate more deer and it's like huh well that's kind of interesting so so residents that were in habitat that was let's say less dense had way more deer consumed in their feces in their scat that's like well that is uh fascinating shocking no but fascinating because it's like this is why we focus so much and talk so much of, of focus on the habitat, manage the habitat. Mother nature is going to work itself out. These predator prey relationships, deer can evade predators. They're not all going to succumb to a, a, a coyote or the pressure or the presence of one there. However, if they don't have adequate cover or what was the less dense vegetation available, well then they're probably going to be more likely or be more susceptible to predation because they don't have the proper escape cover that that and also um it goes a lot with what we've said in the past about those that that denser cover is more um crucial or can can be uh producing more small game species more Mm -hmm. rodents more uh more animals that are easier picking yeah buffer prey more animals that a coyote would much rather um predate on because they're an easier meal um yes and and so double-edged sword there you know less vegetation means not as much escape cover but also means less small game so target number one (laughs) would be the one who can still live in that open landscape and quail's not doing it and uh, a lot of small game aren't doing it so therefore the coyote moves up the food chain and who's he find white-tailed deer yeah absolutely absolutely i mean if i don't have i don't know my preferred food every night for dinner i'm gonna go to what's next like what's what's next available there it's just it's a simple line of of, of food chain yeah. but um it definitely all the research and I, and I love that it's so in-depth and covers such a large scale and they're able to go in and analyze you know vegetation types and, and what deer i mean excuse me what coyotes are are choosing to um set up as territories how much time they're spending in each one and then evaluate scat and are able to look at um, you know, the amount of, of deer in or deer meat in the scat itself. And don't get me wrong. I don't want people to think that we're not chatting about the fact that coyotes do consume deer. Absolutely. They consume deer. It's part of their, their diet really across the entire year, every month, at some point they're going to find deer and have consumed deer. They take deer yeah. every, every year. However, it's like, whether you trap or kill a coyote, 
it does not matter. They're still going to do it. They're still going to be there and they're still going to be probably successful. And if you're choosing to spend your time on your property doing something that has a much larger scale and, and range and is still going to eat deer, whether that you, whether you trap one there or not, it, it doesn't make sense. So, yeah. so focus on improving the habitat where they're, so you can create the denser vegetation where the research shows there will be less deer meat in the scat, therefore less consuming taking of deer if you provide the adequate habitat. Yeah, like what it's, I it's like, because <clears throat> that research has shown much, much more <laughs> than what we wanted. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, and what I like about this research project that uh, Dr. Chamberlain put on and I'm sure other people with him um, is it's a very practical, it's very just here it is. Um, a lot of the predator specifically coyote research that have you've seen in the past five years has been, you know, stuff that's not necessarily uh, doable, achievable by the common landowner, whether it be, you know, Fencing out units, burying fence in the ground right. so coyotes can't get into units, or um, trapping year round, um, and 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 greatly increasing um, uh, the amount of traps per per uh, acre or per per parcel, <clears throat> and or just like just the common where people are making the observations well. <laughs> which isn't research. I shouldn't even I shouldn't even go from research to this, but I'm going to say it anyway is the claims that well, since I started trapping, I started seeing more more animals. Well, there's probably a lot of other things that are going on um that you're not that you're not even seeing or or recognizing. So that doesn't work. That's not research or any kind of findings. That's just your opinion. Yeah, exactly. And and if you look harder you might just find more deer on your land or you might just set up, maybe, maybe bought five more new trail cameras. Cool. Well, yeah, you're probably yeah. going to see more deer because you got five more eyes out there 24 seven. Yeah. Like it, it's, there's so many other factors. Or that you're tra- trapping more predators now than you were five years ago. Well, you're probably, uh, how many more traps are you putting out? Because if you're buying more traps every single year, well, if you have more traps out more days out, then yeah, you should catch more predators. Um, because sure. research tells us that it's only a temporary void when you trap. So there's going to be predators on your place. So at the end of this or uh, this little rant or whatever, we should just say at the end of every month, you're going to have predators. Like you're going to have predators on your place year round. Yeah, absolutely. You sure are. Yeah. And be- because that's, that's the natural world working and functioning as it should. And, yeah. and it's just like, you know, if you're managing your timber, you should have, older growth trees you have middle-aged trees you should have young forest that's a functioning forest this is a a functioning ecosystem of of different wildlife species interacting we're not going to change that nor if we if if you took time if you have this this standpoint um if you took time to research that and know the intricacies of how these populations exist and coexist on on the landscape you'd realize that it's a very necessary part of what we experience in general. And I think it's going to tie into the second half of, of, of research that we're utilizing to make these claims 
is the fact that, well, what if there wasn't predators? Or what if you were limiting your predators or trying to limit them so much that you had a ton of deer? Or, or here's what we see a lot is people who have way too many deer over their carrying capacity are still trying to, <laughs> to remove predators. Yep. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't understand that, that thought process at all. And, no. and so it's like, okay, well that doesn't make much sense if, if you don't like predators, but you can't kill enough deer does in general to manage the population. Why do you hate something that's going to assist you in doing that? Yep. So anyhow, that's kind of the research on it goes and, I, and 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 this I guess the week the reason that this podcast was picked this week is here we are in the middle of social isolation um or social distancing because in our own society right now we've keyed on the fact that social distancing is helping create a healthier herd um and by herd I mean herd of humans mankind <laughs> Um, because we're separating and isolating ourselves, we're avoiding stress. We're, and most importantly, we're in, avoiding sickness and Except interaction. Yes. And the same is true. We've said this a lot about social stress in white tailed deer. It's not, it doesn't seem to be a hot topic. Um, it's, it's not quite caught on to be a silver bullet. Man, maybe one day, Matt. Um, <laughs> but, wow, uh, well, shoot, man, you can't sell that, though. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> well, you can make a cool brand out of you it, You can though. sell bullets. Yeah, there we go. Sell bullets and a brand, yeah. And uh, anyway, uh, we've talked a lot about it. You know, you see large groups herd up in the winter, and there's a lot of stress that's going on. And here we are where we're seeing coronavirus sweep and really be a problem is in very dense pockets of people. And now, so now we're fast forward and we're going right into this podcast, which we just talked about predators. And now we're stepping into doe management um, and, and something that is just so overlooked and not being done i mean we can go to so many farms we could point you at so many farms so many states where it's like well i have a very i have a 90 percent chance that we're going to go there and we're going to see over browsing on the young forest there's not going to be a lot of food available because not enough does are being shot um habitat improvement is being done and therefore because the habitat is improving there's more food available and deer are starting to find that food and they're either having more fawns because they're healthier or there's more deer that their core range overlapped on this farm and now they're moving into it. And now here we are, we have a new problem. Our first problem was habitat was poor. Now habitat's improving. But the new problem is we got too many stinking deer and we're too scared to start shooting them. And, and I think I think to remember this this is where we started the podcast is we're talking about those who are trying to manage for for really big deer and those who are trying to grow great specimens on the landscape 
this is for you. This isn't. This is. This is to not. I won't say settle a score at all, but just to provide quality information about what is actually going to make that possible. Where are you spending your time when you're on your property? What is it that you're actually managing? And again, are you trying to spend too much time on managing something that, quite frankly, the coyote, you can't manage on a, on a property? Whereas when we look at deer and antlerless deer in particular, this second half of the podcast, when we look at core areas, we're talking 35, 40 acres of a, of a scale in which we're managing deer. We're spending a large majority of time. And, and, and the other factor that I think people really miss this, Adam, is the fact that a doe and a buck compete for the same exact resources. Or, or let me say this, they utilize the same exact resources. So if, if I'm trying, if I'm a landowner out there and I, my goal is to have more five and a half year old deer and, and at the point that they're five and a half, I want them to be the biggest, best, healthiest individual possible, correct? Yep, which is, I, which is a lot of guys. And, and frankly, yeah. I think you and I would even fall into that. I mean, we manage our, we manage our farms for, for all wildlife, native species, both plant and animals. But at the same time, when we, when we key on, on just, just the deer, I want to have a healthy population, but I am wanting to show just how big we can grow deer. Um, and, and I think I'd be lying if I said uh, that, that I'm not managing to try to create healthy bucks and see just how big they can get. Because so, I only care about big deer. Okay, yeah. But <laughs> but here's the, the 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 thing I think we have to get the point across is if if I have too many deer for the property and I'm still trying to, to have really big deer on the property, I I have to kind of change my mindset and look at some of the excess does there and say they are a direct competitor to that buck as they are utilizing foraging and spatially occupying and needing the same exact resources on that property. Whereas if I do that direct comparison from a buck to a coyote, there's a little bit of overlap in the foraging, but drastically different as one, the scale at which they're operating on is wildly different. And, and if I'm trying to manage a deer herd, for healthier individuals within that given herd, I got to look right back at the antlerless population and evaluate that and say, is that too high? Because I know I could, I could be limiting. And, and most times, again, like you already said, we're seeing very limited forage available because of the deer densities in a given area. So if that's the case, and this, this, research and, and information all again coming directly through qdma well, yeah um, we should have made them a sponsor this week's podcast yeah yeah i think i think uh kip adams is, is uh was the author of some of the these posts and blogs and articles that that some of this information was used 
um, or came from. But, you know, population models used by a lot of state agencies uh, across the Whitetails range suggest that 20 to 30 percent of adult does in a given population need to be harvested annually to stabilize the herd. So adults, you know, anything from a year and a half older. So are one, we should we should first ask the question, are you even doing that? Are you managing and removing 20 to 30 percent of the adult doe population on your property? And if not, then we really do know that there probably is a larger competition for the food resources. Again, if your goals are managing for larger deer, larger bucks, right? Yep. That's going to be the case. So number one, if you're not doing that, it's basically, what do they call it? A dichotomous key. It's like, go to, go to step number two. Let's, let's continue down, down the, um, down the train. So it's like, if you can determine the number percentage of deer that you need to be harvesting, um, basically by doing annual trail camera surveys or, or intense field observations. But for example, if you, if you think that you have 20 adult deer does, excuse me, adult does on your property, you using your property and you want to stabilize the herd and you say stabilize it is, is a maintain the size. Typically speaking, you're going to need to shoot four to six of those does. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and doe management is one of the, least sexiest practices that I think a lot of landowners can do on their place. Um, it's a lot of work. It can be a lot of work, especially if you have a big chunk of ground and you're trying to think of managing that whole deer herd. Um, at the same time, you know, we've said this so much of, you can see, you can look at anybody who's listening and say, that guy has killed that guy kills some, used to kill some really big deer, or he's got a great farm, but he's kind of been lacking the last few years. He hasn't had the giant that he used to have. Well, you could probably look and say, he's got a ton of does on his place now. He's complaining more about too many does than anything. Our dear friend Seth Harker is kind of going through that with his property. He's had really, really good deer. He still has good deer, but he's gotten to a point where he's got so many does that that's his main focus right now is trying to knock that herd back down to being below um, the quality of the habitat to where he can improve the habitat and make it the very best it can be, but then put that carrying capacity below or uh, put that herd uh, population below his carrying capacity um, to where he can have bigger deer. Yeah, absolutely. So, so here, here's another quick little excerpt, and this this will kind of give a, a a broader look at why it is we're talking about um, what it is. So, consider deer population, which there are more deer than the local habitat can support for optimal health, where deer densities are too high. Habitat quality is going to be very poor. Uh, under these conditions, fawn recruitment is lower than it could be. Does in this population conceive and give birth to fewer fawns on average. Those fawns then experience lower survival rates due to decreased milk abundance, less quality forage for weaning, and greater susceptibility to disease, weather, predators, and other mishaps due to less than optimal health. Now, if you compare that to a population that's in balance with the local habitat, where high-quality forage and browse and other foods are available, the health is high, the stress is low. Most of those living in these conditions will give birth to twins, and as many as one in four does 
will produce triplets. These twins and triplets are more likely to survive than fall because they receive abundant milk, they are weaned on high-quality forage, and they grow strong in less, to- in, in less time. They are able to evade predators sooner than fawns living in poor herd conditions. They are better able to cope with stress factors. So, what I find very, very interesting is that if we actually harvest does or at least keep the antlerless deer numbers where they should be at the right carrying capacity, they're actually going to be healthier individuals. So I know what we're talking about is, is bucks, but if, if, if what we're seeing in does in a healthy population is increase their fitness and then their reproductive function, we're going from maybe one fawn at best to two to three in some instances. What Mm. is that going to do to overall body condition health of a buck? Their fitness is certainly going to be increased and therefore antler production is going to be increased and so, again, if, if we go back to the whole comparison here, what am I, I going to get the best results of? Is it going to be managing coyotes or is it going to be managing the antlerless population? I That's think right. it's really, really clear to see that if you have deer or a herd at the right carrying capacity, the health of those individuals and the, and the overall population is going to drastically increase. Yep. I, it, it's, it's, it's not opinion. I mean, it's science, right? Yeah. This and is really a big part of our, big part of our platform is taking scientific research, trying to chew it up and put it in a more digestive content that's not so much research paper. Are you saying like we're like a mother bird? We're chewing up worms and spitting That's right. Them out? Yeah. We're trying <laughs> to make research papers more easy to understand, more practical. Um, And that's exactly what this is. We're looking at two different types of research projects and then saying, okay, this is why you should be focusing your time more on these projects rather than predator management because it just doesn't add up. No. And so I'll make one last point, one last research, bit of research, and then make another point. But in 2004, high deer density population on a non-hunted state park in Georgia was reduced through doe harvest. This harvest took place after the breeding season in 2004, and the researcher found that 0.79 fetuses per doe, so roughly 0.8 fetuses per doe from the fall in which those deer were um, in a high-stress, high-deer-density environment, 0.8 fetuses per doe when they analyze, you know, the the does that were taken. After the very next rut, so one year, they went back to the same park and did another harvest. After the very next rut, the number jumped to 1.44 fetuses per doe, nearly doubled in one year. We have, obviously, there at that point, way more forage quality deer body weights increased and the health factors improved rapidly. And that's a one year, one year. 
And and I know someone's out there thinking, <clears throat> well, guys, the whole point you were talking about to reduce deer, but now but now we're shooting those and getting more fawns. The whole point of this is to show that individuals within the herd, if you manage them at the right levels or deer density, will be healthier individuals. And all we have to do is to continue to maintain that population at that stabilized level. So again, if you have 20 deer, 20 adult deer, you're still killing four to six. You're still stabilizing it. And when we compare it to trying to manage coyotes, you're you're not able to do that. But deer, we hunt them every single year, every fall. We're able to successfully target and kill and remove does. That that's a feasible thing. Like you can put energy and time and effort into that and yield results that actually matter. In one year, this research found it doubled the amount of fetuses found in these does. Like that's actual beneficial information that is feasible for every hunter, every landowner out there. It can be done. So if we're trying to improve a buck, the potential for that buck, we've got to stick with managing deer and managing the habitat that they use. That's right. The rest is going to take care of itself. We need to add more food, cover, water, and security, and we need to eliminate the competition of other does. Yeah, absolutely. Knock that population within a oh, to where your habitat can actually hold it. And and so know that if you shoot more does, you're going to continue having, you're going to have healthier does, which means they may drop twins or triplets. So you're going to have to continue removing does. So find. But that's fun. Find, that's, yeah, and it's a big Dang part it. of it. <laughs> it's finding, find, find family members. Invite friends. Invite family that have never hunted. Let them shoot does. Make it more of a big picture usable farm to where you have more people coming in. At the same time, you're probably going to have the chance of shooting bigger deer because you actually have them on the place and they're not getting pushed around or, or going somewhere where there's not so many deer. Uh, improve the habitat. Fix fix the problems that you can actually solve um, on your place. Don't Don't try to chase coyotes down and and kill them when they're just going to turn around and there's going to be another one there next week. It's, it's a wild goose chase. Honestly, it's, it's, it's a waste of time. Yes. They are present. Yes. They have an, an impact. We can, we can't deny that they don't have an impact on deer from a, from a social interaction. Um, from yes, they will take, they will take deer. Like we, we know that, but we don't know the extenuating circumstances with that individual. Maybe they were, um injured yeah Maybe that deer had a something. broken foot or a it, yeah. it somehow had it an infection and it, and it was sick we we just we don't we don't know that's not a very clear full picture but what what is a clear and full picture is managing does produces these results in the existing population and again we could extrapolate that same benefit or or let's say health of an individual over to bucks as well and I don't know how many times that we've heard, well, I've got a lot of deer. I'll just plant more. Well, that, that, that's not doing it. 
that's that's attracting more deer. Yeah. You have like you have to you have to shoot them. Like and and it's like again, I'm like, call me, I'll come. That's yeah. fun. Like that. That's when it comes to management techniques. Man, I could think of a lot worse things to do. Like that's a lot harder work. TSI. You run a chainsaw three days in a row for 10 hours, like you're going to feel it. Like it's yeah. going to be hard work. It's not the easiest thing to do. But by golly, shooting. You know what? Though? Five extra, ten extra does. Think about it like this too. You run a chainsaw for three days. You're going to feel it for a few more days, but your property is going to feel it for years. Mm-hmm. You do something that you're not going to feel, you probably property's not going to feel it a whole lot either. That's great, great point. And, great point. Um, you know, that's why old field management spraying us. <laughs> you don't have to feel that, but your property feels it for a long, long time. That's why we love it so much. Absolutely. I mean, it's a fantastic technique, but, but I think that, like, without this science provided, we overlook the, some, of the, some of the simple things. We, we just say, oh, that old field is just nasty. Let me just brush hog it. It doesn't have benefit. Or let let me let me just. I, I'm not worried about shooting those because that's just you know that's just easy. Like I feel like I gotta do something. Like let me go and plant more. Or let me go and try and tackle all these coyotes around. You know what I mean? Let me try. Let me try and improve the predator numbers. Or I guess improve as in decrease the predator numbers. Guys, that we we just discussed. That's tough. That's yeah. really. If that's impossible. People have been. People, let me tell you, people have been trying that for decades. That ain't working. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It does not yield results that you're looking for in your individual, your given property, whether that's a lease property, whether you own it. It flat out doesn't work. Nope. 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 Hopefully, um, this has opened. Hopefully they came into this with an open mind, um, and and now people are really thinking about, wow, maybe this is something I need to adapt. Uh, this that makes sense. I need to, you know, maybe come December, January, I'm not going to focus so much on running 20 traps and removing four coyotes this next winter um, and 10 raccoons. I'm going to run a chainsaw instead, and I'm going to put some habitat on the ground and and figure out ways to start striking the fire, if you will, um, that way, rather than focusing on these other projects that somebody else told me to do because they thought it was the best thing for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, all I, all I gotta say is it's just, it's just science. It's just, it's just factual information that we want to share with people so that they can experience and, and spin and kick less tires, they can actually go out and do what it is that they're trying to do and trying to accomplish on the landscape. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I hope that you guys take time to share it with people so that they can um, also make that impact too, because neighbors work with neighbors is a powerful, powerful thing. Um, I, I think that's definitely a wave of the future. So um I hope that people certainly liked it. I hope that they're gearing up for turkey season if it's not open in their state already, as well as kind of getting ready for food plot season because it's coming. For sure. For sure. Well, man, um, it was fun once again. 
And uh, I'll see you at the fire in the morning. Sounds good, man. We'll see you. Thanks for listening, guys. Yep.